This podcast was originally the audio for a work of the same name for the Nearly On Red YouTube channel, found at youtube.com slash c slash nearly on red. Though not intended to be a standalone podcast, viewers frequently consume my videos for their audio content only, so I have duplicated my work in this format to hopefully save people a step. A full list of content and platforms can be found at nearlyonred.com or the short link nearly.red, N-E-A-R-L-Y dot R-E-D. Enjoy! Welcome, one and all, to the Not Quite Daily Show, episode 11 of Winter 2018 and episode 11 of Darling and the Franks. Well, if you've been watching my show all along, very little in this episode should have surprised you. We talked about this, and this, and this, and this, and this, and even this. In other words, quite apart from the actual events of this episode, I'm really pleased that we seem to be on target in the things we've guessed about the story, the world, and the parasites' relationships. There's a few little adjustments and a few new things we pick up, too, but the main reason that this was a solid episode was the emphasis on complicating our characters. Background members of the squad take hopeful steps and are let down. A sympathetic but relatively shallow character gets made less sympathetic but more nuanced. And an arguably unlikable character gets context, humanization, and a small step towards redemption. And, just like in episodes 6 and 9, they manage to weave the character conflict into the battle against a large and dangerous Klaxosaur giving us yet another variation on the threats and types these enemies can present. We even got a continuation of Zero Two's new character crisis in a way that didn't interfere with the main thrust of the story. This was really great work, so let's get right to it. Originally, I thought we would have gotten to Mitsuru's past earlier in the series, but it seems we had to wait until we were in the side character section of our work. Better late than never, and appropriately, it's now Mitsuru's turn to play narrator. Like last time, we open with our narrating character's early memories. In this case, Mitsuru's memories of young Hiro being chosen as the children's leader and his admiration for him. Also like last time, the nature of the narration is different than what we've had before. Most narration has been narrating the character's current thoughts, reflecting where they are in that moment, but we have had a few occasions of past scenes mixed with narration that either explained the past scenes or gave additional subtext to them. This time, the narration does neither. Rather, it's as though Mitsuru is watching his memory and arguing with it, railing against it. It's his present self in conflict with his past self. As we will see from the rest of this episode, this shakeup in the way the narration is presented is a great reflection of where Mitsuru himself is in his character journey, a man who can't reconcile how he used to feel with how he feels now. The narration and flashback are presented to us as a dream that he wakes from, uncharacteristically late, as evidenced by Zotome's comment. Wait a minute, was Fatoshi sleeping next to a loaf of bread like it was a hug pillow? That boy ain't right. Luckily, the allure of food pulls them away, and Mitsuru has a moment to collect his thoughts. We get a hint of why his current self is embittered compared to his past self as he lays out the main subject for this episode. If you place your hopes in anything, they will be betrayed. Thus, we know that some past betrayal is what has brought him to the state. 
Now, as he continues, we get where he is on the subject of hope. He has decided that the best hedge against being hurt, again, is to never expect anything from anyone. I have remarked before about Mitsuru's sensitivity. In episode 8, I said, but I think Mitsuru is probably the most sensitive out of all the guys. I think his dismissive and occasionally abrasive personality is a reaction to the sensitivity of his, as a defense mechanism. He lashes out and pushes away because he's much more easily harmed than the others. He's keeping people at arm's length for his own sake. I still think this way, and I think his inner monologue backs this up. His statement about promises will go unfulfilled and faith will be let down is borderline despair, the reaction of someone who is wounded. Sensitivity is a double-edged sword, and while I'm sure Mitsuru has gone to great lengths to try to blunt his sensitivity and reduce his exposure to pain, this episode demonstrates that he's still very capable of emotional turmoil. By the way, that clip from a moment ago was from when I was speculating that he and Kokoro would become a thing, and his sensitivity was one of the reasons I thought it made sense. Of course, for something like that to work, for any relationship to work, one has to put a little faith in the other. One has to expose themselves a little bit to disappointment, to pain. Mitsuru begins this episode incapable of this. He has intentionally erected barriers between himself and others. So from the outset, we get this driving question for his characterization. Can he let these barriers down and dare to place hope in someone besides himself? The series' use of piloting as a metaphorical stand-in for relationships will get to stretch its legs once again. After the credits, the squad is returning from a day out fighting Klaxosaurs, and we have two halves of a combat briefing. The first part is just an after-action report, whose main purpose is to let us know that Mitsuru and Ikuno's rocky partnership has not improved, and their performance is substandard. We also get our first mention of S-planning, whatever that turns out to be. Once the parasites are dismissed, Nana and Hachi discuss their combat data and development of late. It seems the Ape Council's interest in them last time was about more than just their different fighting style. Our 13th squad is outstripping other squads in a quantitative way. Nana even says that it would be unthinkable for any other team to achieve such rapid growth. She suggests that it may be due to their simultaneous puberty and competitive spirit, while Hachi thinks that this is impossible as it would be a total refutation of their previous methods. This seems very in line with our nature versus artifice ongoing struggle and its sister, Order versus Chaos, with the more natural, chaotic, and individualistic members of Squad 13 exceeding the expected metrics for their performance. Nana poses the question that we ourselves have wondered. What if that's exactly what Dr. Franks is after? We still don't know exactly what he's about, but we've discussed it a lot. The thing worth noting from this exchange is that whatever he hopes to achieve with his natural slash retro treatment of Squad 13, as long as it seems to help and not hinder their performance, he will likely get a free hand to continue. Ape demonstrated last time that they only superficially understand the parasites and their bygone era, so having impressive metrics is probably all that Dr. Franks needs to keep them from meddling with Squad 13's development. We skip in time to another mission with our squad involved in what seems like guard detail for a construction project. This is related to the S-planning that Nana referenced earlier, and the squad speculates as to what it is. They theorize that whatever is going on must involve digging for something, which shouldn't be all that surprising considering all the magma extraction works we've seen to this point. It does at least tell us that the parasites don't know what it is. And we also see this number 10 all over the site, so we will just look for that and the S planning to show up again in the future. Zero Two, despite her greater knowledge, has nothing to add, 
except that it must be nothing good as she's about to choke from the stench of Klaxosaurs. We saw in episode one that she can smell them before they ever show up, but how that relates exactly to this digging is something we can't totally guess. We're assuming that Klaxosaurs are roused by any transfer of magma or any disruption of that part of the Earth, but there could always be more to it that we don't understand. I mean, there would be little need to be cryptic and call this whole thing S-planning if it was something as simple as, we're digging for magma here, go guard it, right? While they are waiting, Fatoshi and Kokoro are having a little chat in their cockpit. Now, the first time watching this scene, it seems extraneous. Fatoshi essentially notes that they're doing well, Kokoro gives him credit, and he runs with it. In his eagerness, he wants to extract a promise from her that they'll always be partners. I don't doubt that he is earnest in wanting to be her partner, but considering the lack of autonomy the parasites have, this seems like an exercise in futility. Now, in-universe, this is probably true, but his actions here make more sense if you remember that partnerships are used as a metaphor for relationships. This is Fatoshi asking Kokoro to be his wife before they're even dating, basically. Or a less severe analogy, this is Fatoshi assuming that a girl being nice to him is the same thing as a girl returning his feelings. He's not the first or last guy to make that mistake. It's one of those little delights of going through puberty. Now, their little exchange is broken up by the embarrassing knowledge that they were broadcasting to the whole group, followed by an alert for approaching Klaxosaurs. Now, this coincides with Mitsuru disconnecting due to some ailment, which seems to be the real conflict introduced here. The whole bit between Fatoshi and Kokoro seemed extraneous, like I said, unless you remember that Mitsuru already set out our subject for this episode. If you place your hopes in anyone, they will be betrayed. Mitsuru's sweat-inducing dream and blaming his poor performance on not feeling well now appear to be part of a pattern. Hachi refers to something ominously called the child fever and says that it came sooner than expected. Well, when was it expected? I mean, not to get ahead of ourselves or anything, but wasn't I just talking last episode about believing there may be something the children carry that prevents them from reaching adulthood? That this is at least some of the reason they don't become adults like Zotome assumes? And now we have a disease literally called child fever? And the dilemma doesn't seem to be that he has it, but that it showed up too soon? The pervasiveness of this condition gets reinforced when Hachi looks at his medical records and notes that he's already had the procedure. So not only is it a normal and expected thing, there's already a standard way to address it or forestall it. There are zero surprises here, in other words. The meaning of the procedure actually gets unpacked for us by our squad. It starts with Godoro suggesting that Mitsuru has always had a weak body, but Ichigo counters that he was the only one to come back from receiving the injection. Now, while that exchange could just be setting up Miku and Ikuno's Q&A to explain things to the audience, I think there is some implication here that Mitsuru appears weak on the outside at times, but is actually unusually strong or resilient. He came back from something that usually kills others. It's a complete flip from how he sees himself, as someone who is weak inside and so needs to project a strong exterior. Either way, we get the injection explained. It induces more yellow blood cell production and increases one's parasite aptitude, and we learn that it has a 15% survival rate. This is another mention of our yellow blood cells, something that first showed up when Nana and Hachi were evaluating Hero's blood during that whole blue heart thing. I said then that yellow blood cells are another term for platelets to go along with red and white blood cells. While that is true, I suspect now that this limited usage in English is not actually what the writers are intending. 
They simply mean some extra component to one's blood that they can refer to. It's a form of biological technobabble. And it seems related in some way both to warding off the effects of this fever and one's ability to pilot the Franks. I'll talk more about what that may mean in speculation. For now, let's just note that he is probably the only one here who has had this injection, and it may be that this is the reason we see him taking pills from time to time, rather than that incident with Zero Two. Now during this whole exchange, most of the parasites are somber but politely curious. The only person who seems legitimately distraught is Kokoro, but I've talked before about my suspicions that she is drawn to Mitsuru. The other thing going on in this scene is Goro filling in some past details. Mitsuru always used to follow Hiro around, which is something the others find hard to believe given what they know of the two. Now Goro doesn't know why it changed, and indeed, part of the point of this episode is letting Mitsuru tell his side of the fallout, but Goro does give us an important detail, something that Mitsuru himself didn't seem to notice. Around the same time that Mitsuru had the injection, Hiro himself went through something that changed him. This will come up again later. Kokoro has not gotten sidetracked by this discussion about Hiro in the past though. She's still thinking about Mitsuru and the risky injection he took in the past. Yet another clue to us how she feels toward him, feelings that ultimately shape her actions later on. Mitsuru's fever dreams continue in the next bit, teasing out a little more of his past. We now know that his conflict between his past and current self's relationship with Hiro is related to things that happened around the time of his elixir injection. His memories fill this link in just a little more for us. We see that Mitsuru wanted to pilot a Franks with Hiro, but he would never be allowed to in his weak condition. He then references the injection, asking Hiro if they can pilot together if he survives. The dream blanks out Hiro's answer, and Mitsuru awakes. The lips move, but we hear nothing bit almost always means we'll see the scene again, but in full, so we'll address it in full when we do. The only thing to remember from this part that doesn't come up later is that there is some implied causality. They stress the risk of the elixir injection, that it has a high chance of fatality, and yet the way Mitsuru phrases things here makes it seem like he is going to get the injection because it will make him strong enough to pilot with Hiro. In other words, Mitsuru risked his life in hopes of piloting with him. How did Hiro handle this level of devotion? Well, we'll find out later on, but we can probably guess it didn't go to code if he's still broken up about it. Morning comes, and Mitsuru's condition has improved. He immediately wants to pilot. Nana tries to beg him off, since he's still recovering, but he is insistent. It seems they compromise, as we next see he and Ikuno in what looks like the testing cockpit that we saw back in episode 1 during Naomi and Hiro's failure. Mitsuru can't get it up, his rating, I mean his rating, and this is apparently the 37th failure in a row we are seeing if we read the other text on the status monitor. Hashi suggests that if this continues, Mitsuru might be a pruning target. He says that really casually, but pruning target? It's not a translation either, he's using the English word for pruning. And in English, the word has two main connotations. One is the more literal meaning, a cutting away of branches or stems of plants, often dead branches, in order to encourage increased growth. This plays perfectly with our plant symbolism, of course. The other is the more figurative meaning suggested by the plant trimming action, in which pruning can mean simply removing anything that is unnecessary or unwanted. The double meaning applies both ways here, and suggests rather strongly that Mitsuru may be on the chopping block if no way is found for him to improve. Nana looks thoughtful for a moment, and then it seems she comes up with an idea. The idea that gives this episode its title. 
Now, one of the more curious things about this idea of nanas is that it is entirely optional. I've gotten the impression to this point that parasites don't usually have a lot of autonomy when choosing partners, or, well, choosing much of anything, really. Zero Two had to basically jailbreak Hero to prove to everyone that they could manage, and it's hard to believe that Ichigo and Hero wouldn't have tried to be partners originally if it was completely up to them. Ikuno and Mitsuru also seem like a product of having their pairing chosen for them, right? But it may be that Nana is getting into the spirit of things that Dr. Franks wants for Squad 13. We did just see her suggest to Hachi that the things normally viewed as problems in a squad could potentially be what is allowing the 13ers to excel. Hachi is clearly a by-the-book sort, the good soldier type. In this society, that means he can casually talk about that there may be a need to prune Mitsuru away. Nana, though, suggests a way to avoid that, this partner shuffle, and gives authority to the parasites to choose. Of course, it's exactly because they can choose that part of this conflict arises, so let's move into the scene itself. Nana first gives them all a chance to talk it out amongst themselves. Fatoshi and Kokoro are the first conversation we see, but just like in the cockpit conversation earlier, this is mostly Fatoshi with all of the speaking initiative and Kokoro just going along with it. She assents to his pronouncement and then looks down, holding her smile in place. This seems like a good time to reiterate that Kokoro struggles with confrontation. It took her almost all of the girls versus boys episode to break ranks with the rest of the girls. It's even one of the things she finds so cool about Mitsuru. She says that it takes a lot of courage to refuse to toe the line. She was too scared to say anything. It seems harsh of her to say nothing during this exchange considering what happens, but we've already seen that this isn't in her nature. What's more, Fatoshi doesn't understand her well enough to even know that much about her. He thinks they're communicating. He assumes that they are on the same page because she doesn't disagree. She did promise to be his partner forever, but that was also before she had any reason to believe that she'd ever have a choice in the matter. Hero and Zero Two are up next. We discussed last time that it was obvious she was withdrawn, and also that Hero had noticed and was not ignoring it. There is no discussion here about them changing partners, right? Like, that's not even on the table. But he is using the implied discontent amongst partners to try to approach whatever it is that's bothering her. She pretends not to remember his request about her speaking her mind, but I don't believe her. In that scene, at the end of episode 8, her response to his statement about getting to know her better was to smile and say, Darling, grab onto me and never let go, okay? I definitely think she's a bit cagey about making herself vulnerable, but we've noted before that she has let Hiro see a bit of her vulnerable side at times. She wants to trust someone. She wants to let her guard down to someone. She has chosen Hiro for this because of a sense of solidarity she felt with him initially, and because of the attraction they feel toward one another. But the situation with her canines lengthening last time has changed things. Last episode, I actually said, thus, I speculate that she will reject him, or push him back to arm's length like she treats everyone else. She will attempt to destroy some of what they have together. I didn't expect her to quite literally put him at arm's length, but hey, there's no misinterpreting this. Now, I predicted that this would happen in part because of the shattered mirror in the opening credits, but I think it's foreseeable just from an analysis of her character to this point. See, I think that this is happening during this episode, or maybe Mitsuru's episode is happening at this point, uh, because her inner conflict and Mitsuru's inner conflict are the same type of problem. Mitsuru has his guard up because of a betrayal in the past. He keeps people at arm's length because it protects his vulnerability. 
Zero-Two probably has a past full of terrible moments herself. We don't know yet if betrayal is part of it, but I think she is afraid of how she may be treated if people think she's becoming more monstrous. She already thinks of her horns, that is, her Klaxosaur blood, as being the reason she's always alone. She fears further rejection, just like Mitsuru. Since she has started to trust Hiro a little bit, accepting him as her partner when no one else would do, I think she is particularly afraid of rejection from him. I believe this is why she is hesitant to reveal too much about herself or her past. In general, yes, but to him especially. Now that she's becoming more monstrous or less human, as she sees it, her fear of rejection is heightened. Far better to push Hiro away so he doesn't discover and he can't be the one to push her away. Thus, she blows off his attempt to understand her and says that they can understand each other just fine by piloting Strelizia. To harken back to our piloting a sexuality metaphor for a moment, this statement of hers reminds me of a couple who has stopped talking or hanging out other than to engage in sexual activity. This may seem counterintuitive, but it's not that uncommon for a relationship that is starting to deteriorate to see an uptick in sexual frequency. Sometimes this is an attempt to right the ship by engaging in something that makes both parties feel positive about the arrangement. Sometimes it happens after one party has given up fixing things and is therefore just going to use the benefits while they last. Either way, it's a mistake to think a relationship can persist solely on the strength of its sexual portion. And it's a mistake for Zero Two to believe that they will be fine so long as they pilot together. Luckily for her, Hero probably actually loves her and isn't going to be content with that arrangement. He's going to keep prodding her. Lastly, the problem partnership that started all this. Mitsuru was watching the exchange between Hiro and Zero Two, apparently uninterested in discussing with his own partner, but Ikuno comes into their conversation swinging, telling him that he knows what caused this mess. He plays dumb about her insinuation, but she says it takes courage to face up to others and to yourself, and in a moment, she will take her own advice. Mitsuru still wants to deflect, so she starts to spell it out, that the person he wants approval from isn't Papa or other adults, but he interrupts, loudly and aggressively. It's unsaid, of course, but it's pretty clear she was going to spell out that he wanted Hero's approval, Hero's acknowledgement. A lot of his behavior in this series makes sense if you assume this as his motivation. He both loves and hates Hero, and both wants to best him and tear him down but without ever revealing either of these desires. We'll have to wait to see the root of this conflict in him, but it's clear to Ikuno, and increasingly so to us, that Mitsuru's aloof nature is not the truth of him. He's passionate and, as I've said repeatedly, very sensitive. Now, Ikuno ends their chat by saying, but I'm not like you. She's said this before, actually, back in the beach episode when Mitsuru was musing on Hero's change. I honestly am not totally sure what she means. To elaborate on this, this seems like as good a time as any to float the possibility that, just like Ikuno, Mitsuru might be interested in his own gender. I don't think the evidence is nearly as strong. Even before this episode, the case for Ikuno being into Ichigo was solid, and the next scene kind of erases any doubt. Mitsuru potentially carrying a flame for Hiro, though, is a way I can see his actions being interpreted, but there's a dearth of evidence compared to what we have for Ikuno. We know that he followed him around, looked up to him, and wanted to pilot with him, something that implies same-gender attraction, as it will for Ikuno, and yet there are moments when he's paying attention to Kokoro instead. 
He also seems dissatisfied with his partner situation in a way that Yukuno is not. However, he was largely indifferent to the boys versus girls fight, appeared to be disinterested in ogling the girls at the beach like the other guys, and as Yukuno points out, seems to want acknowledgement from Hiro. I would say that he seems more like someone relatively asexual who looked up to Hiro in the past and struggles with the conflict between the version of Hiro he believed in then and the version he has of him in the present. The fact that this admiration started when they were children means it's not inherently a sexual thing. Now, he may be into Hiro, I'm not eliminating that possibility, but we're going to be cautious and certain with this like we were with Ikuna. So with all that out there, what does Ikuna mean when she says, I'm not like you? Does she mean I don't like guys the way you do, thus I'm not going to affirm or support your feelings toward Hiro? Does she mean instead that she's not like him because he's heterosexual and she's not, and thus does not fit into the group in the way that he could? Does she mean that she's not like him because she is at peace with what she feels and why, while he is in denial? I don't know. Ikuno is not as fully developed as some other characters, so it's harder for me to guess. What do you think she means? I do think the beginning of the next bit is possibly a clue. Asked if any want to try a different partner, Ikuno asserts that she wants to try a pistol-to-pistol -pistol connection. This is surprising but not shocking to everyone else, and Mitsuru looks at her without surprise, more like understanding, as though this move of hers was a continuation of their conversation. I think for sure he knows that she is into girls, probably that it's Ichigo in particular, but it's not the kind of thing he cares about enough to argue with or spread to others. If he himself is homosexual, there might be an unspoken understanding that they can't really address it with others. Indeed, they might not even see the point considering the parasite's limited knowledge on sexuality. This potential confusion could be stirred up by Ikuno being so bold as to want to try a pistol-to-pistol -pistol connection. But it could just as easily be that her boldness in being honest with herself and the rest of the group puts his own facade into contrast. Ikuno rationalizes a reason for this pistol-to-pistol -pistol thing and asks Ichigo to be the one she tries with, surprising her, but not us. The real surprise for the group is when Kokoro raises her hand. Now, I do wonder if she would have said anything without Ikuno speaking up. Ikuno is not asking for a permanent partner change. She sells it as a backup plan for when they're down a stamen. But since Ikuno is willing to try with another partner, it means that she and Mitsuru are not dedicated to being only with each other. Which means Mitsuru is potentially available, something that Kokoro probably didn't think would ever come up. Ikuno, after all, is seizing the opportunity, slim as it may be. Perhaps Kokoro is emboldened by this, in the same way that Mitsuru's actions in Episode 8 emboldened her to speak her mind to the others. Of course, it's a relatively cowardly way to do it, but it might be the best that she can do as she is now. She can't even meet Fatoshi's eyes to apologize, but now that it's out there, he can't try to persuade her or guilt her into not considering it. I feel the way the scene is shot, too, is meant to convey Fatoshi as being a little controlling or creepy. Now, I don't think he's a bad guy necessarily, though I don't think the writers like him very much, but we have seen more than once that he doesn't really understand Kokoro and has not made any effort we know of to understand her. He is into her despite not quite understanding what that means and just assumes that she reciprocates, even trying to extract the completely unnecessary promise from her earlier in the episode. Anyway, they try the two pairings out. 
Ikuno and Ichigo don't seem to be working, as Ichigo says she doesn't feel a thing. Mitsuru and Kokoro, on the other hand, are good enough to continue, which will forestall any need to prune Mitsuru, the original reason Nana proposed the shakeup. Immediately following, we have the girls' locker room where Ichigo and Ikuno are getting back into their civilian wear. Ichigo says she knew it wouldn't work without a boy in a lighthearted way, as though Ikuno was testing something interesting but obviously impossible. Ikuno, though, is not feeling lighthearted, and says she was serious before storming away. The gravity of the pistol-to-pistol -pistol experiment is quite different for these two. It was bold of her, but ultimately didn't get her what she hoped for. She exits the dressing room and runs into Mitsuru, telling him to laugh at her if he must. This has the feel of some long exchange between them. He hides how he really feels to avoid being hurt or let down, something that she seems to criticize him for. Yet when she now puts herself out there, she is let down. It would seem for the moment that his approach would have saved her some pain. Speaking of pain, Fatoshi is beside himself and quite confused. Zotome reveals that he's not the person you should go to for sympathy. Hiro interprets Kokoro's actions based on what the squad at large seems to think of her. She's such a nice girl, she was probably wanting to help out poor, miserable Mitsuru. Who then shows up, assesses the situation, and decides, uh, I'll come back later. Fatoshi antagonizes him, wants to know if he's looking down on him, but Mitsuru tries to act like he doesn't care at all, saying, what doesn't matter who our partners are? Well, not valuing the fact that you now have Kokoro as your pistol is just the wrong thing to say to Fatoshi, who shows us some future NFL potential as he tries to attack Mitsuru. Ah, Fatoshi, violence is never the answer. Unless the question is, what is never the answer? In which case, violence is the answer. It does him no good either way, as Mitsuru dodges the punch without even looking perturbed, and continues to wander away from the scene. Hiro asks him to try to understand how Fatoshi feels, and this makes Mitsuru break his facade. How dare Hiro of all people say that to him? This reaction makes perfect sense once we find out more, but for now we're just as confused as Hiro. Once Mitsuru is gone, Fatoshi tries to explain his misery. He talks about a tightness in his chest he feels towards Kokoro, but now that feeling is one of pain and he doesn't understand why. Hiro knows exactly what he's feeling though, and tells him that he hears him. Goro does too, and we can see him listening with his own understanding of Fatoshi's plight. They are in the same boat in a lot of ways. Evidently, the spat with Fatoshi gives Mitsuru cause to go seek Kokoro out. She has taken to playing house. It seems she has internalized everything she learned from the maternity book. She is startled and probably a little embarrassed to be caught at play, but by now these two have to know they'll run into each other here. They clearly want to. Still toying with the doll, Kokoro asks Mitsuru, why do you think humans stopped having children? Well, I guess that confirms that. No idea where the parasites or the younger adults come from, but this one little question tells us that we've been right all along about the shakeup in the natural order. The pervasive infertility, even if it ends up being cultural rather than medical, and it also tells us that this was information the parasites already had. How we are explaining their existence against the backdrop of humans stopped having children, I don't know. Does she mean that in a society-wide sense, people largely don't do it anymore? Or are they part of the last group of children born into the world, the youngest people alive? What specifically she means, we'll just have to wonder about, but Mitsuru at least thinks that the reason why is because they don't need to anymore. The only way that statement makes sense is if people have stopped dying of old age. So, 
I guess we'll keep assuming that we're on the right track. Now, Kokoro argues to the nature side of our nature versus artifice question, asking if having a baby wasn't the most natural thing in the past. But Mitsuru dismisses this as unnecessary, and says that just looking at the adults makes it clear. We don't need others to live. We'll return to this in theme. Suffice to say that Kokoro doesn't share this assessment based on her troubled expression. Mitsuru gets to the heart of why he probably sought her out, asking why she volunteered to be his partner. After all, it's causing him trouble with Fatoshi, and that's a pain. Kokoro looks even more troubled at this. We've observed already that she doesn't like confrontation, but what if that's not quite what this is? I'd asserted before that I think Kokoro is into Mitsuru, and I'm assuming that is a good part of why she wanted to try being his partner. While being caught playing house is a good enough segue into asking him about having children, is it possible she's feeling him out in a different sense? We know by now she has read and understood the maternity book. She knows it takes boys and girls together to make babies, and now she's got the guy she wanted as her partner. So how does he feel about the whole making babies thing? And what he's saying is, he thinks babies are unnecessary things, and thinks we don't need others to live. This is definitely not him entertaining the idea of being anything to Kokoro. And here she is, knowing what she did to Fatoshi for the chance to be with him, and he is not on the same page at all. I can imagine she doesn't feel that great right now. Since she doesn't answer his question, he asks her if it was out of pity, and she rushes to tell him that it wasn't. She starts to expand on this before they're interrupted, but we can probably guess what she was going to say. See, the pity comment he made is a callback to the first time we saw them together in the greenhouse, in episode 5. Coco is asking if she can do anything for him, and points out that he never leans on others. But he cuts her off, asking if she's pitying him. He's bothered or saddened by this idea. What we have in this scene is Mitsuru stating that they don't need others to live, which jives with what Kokoro observed back in episode 5. Then, as now, Mitsuru can't conceive of why Kokoro might want to help him, might want him to lean on her or confide in her. He doesn't get how she feels, basically, and so interprets it as pity. It's not, and so I think what she's about to say is that he should really learn to lean on others, that she doesn't want to pity him, but to help him, to be there for him, and it's natural for people to want to do this for one another. But they will have to table this discussion, as the Klaxosaurs have had enough of screwing around and have broken out the big guns. As they dash to deployment, Fatoshi attempts to make Mitsuru promise to protect Kokoro. Here he is again, trying to force a promise out of someone else. Mitsuru scoffs at the idea of a promise, a reaction that we'll understand better in a moment. Doing so almost sends Fatoshi back into violence, which is never the answer. Unless the question is... No, I did that bit already. Anyway, Kokoro intercedes, and Fatoshi loses his anger, only to have it replaced by sadness before he runs off. Ikuno has traded one emotional partner for another, it seems, but this one has no trouble showing how he feels. Careful what you wish for. The actual fight commences, and this time we're up against a giant, uh, table. Zero Two, who has been sedate and disengaged for most of the last two episodes, is suddenly recklessly enthusiastic and throws Strelizia into the fight at once. She attacks despite the risk, despite the others having to pull them out when they overcommit. She very nearly gets them crushed until Hero jerks them backward, and then she yells at him too. She seems borderline out of control. But it is interesting to note that she can control Strelizia, that it's not just her being connected and Hero doing all of the maneuvering. Maybe he has the power of override, since he was able to pull her back, but it seems that both pilots can contribute to the movement of these things. 
Luckily, Hiro is able to calm her down, and the fight becomes a team effort once again as they try to understand how to deal with this Klaxosaur's unique abilities. Kokoro proposes the tactic they will run with, even though it will put her at great risk, a situation that just thrills Fatoshi. Janista and Chlorophytum are forced into the fight before they set up for this, however, as some of the smaller Klaxosaurs break away to engage them. This is the first real fight for each of these new partnerships, and it doesn't take long to realize that Ikuno and Mitsuru both had things they could have learned from others, as Fatoshi and Kokoro both have suggestions for improvement. Mitsuru's own recklessness gets them bailed out by Hiro and Zero Two, but being aided by Hiro just makes Mitsuru more reckless, and he gets them into a much worse situation. Luckily, Fatoshi's personal shortcomings have no bearing on his ability to pilot, and he comes to their rescue. The rest of the team steps up as well, and once the Klaxosaur changes its tactics, they decide they must also. I have to say, this ended up being one of the more interesting Klaxosaur fights we've had, certainly the most interesting since the target beta fight. Now, Kokoro and Mitsuru are still underneath the beast as Chlorophytum holds the Klaxosaur back, and so she attempts to rally him and get them back into the fight. But now, his insistence on self-reliance starts to backfire. I'll talk about this more in theme, but the downside to the idea that you can live all on your own is that you cannot rise above your own shortcomings. Confronted with his imperfect abilities, Mitsuru retracts entirely, telling Kokoro that placing hope in him will only lead to her being let down because he is incompetent. Despite her dislike of confrontation, she is not going to shy away from the conversation this time. It's the worst possible time to have a chat, granted, and Hachi tries to point this out, but the suddenly determined Kokoro cuts him off and continues. This is where she gets to resume the conversation from the greenhouse, and she starts by telling him he can rely on others. She will believe in him, and he should believe in her. Even if he can't believe in himself, he should believe in the Kokoro that believes in him. Something like that. But he can't, and we finally find out why as our flashback sequence gets completed. It seems Hiro didn't just entertain the notion of piloting with Mitsuru, he promised to do so. Then we skipped to what must be Mitsuru post-injection. He took the risky treatment and survived, and has come to tell Hiro that he held up his end. He's stronger now, he can pilot with him. He risked his life, sure, but he made good on their promise. And Hiro doesn't remember. Now I'll talk about this more in speculation, but it kind of looks like Hiro is not quite himself during this encounter. Mitsuru is too distraught to notice, but I'm guessing Hiro has gone through something of his own. Now, it doesn't matter to Mitsuru if he doesn't notice it, and what he learned from this encounter was that promises just set you up for disappointment. He doesn't understand why someone would make a promise if they weren't going to keep it. He and Fatoshi should compare notes, uh, if Fatoshi could stop trying to deck him. Now, Mitsuru has been carrying the pain of this for a long time. Its effect on him has been pretty far-reaching. This may seem melodramatic, especially since he should be able to realize by now that the two of them piling together might have been impossible anyway. I think the key to his wound, though, is what he gave up, what he lost. He was weak and knew it, and decided to risk himself for a chance to be part of the group, part of a partnership, part of something greater than himself. When Hiro appears to even forget the reason Mitsuru would do something like that, it shakes his confidence not just in Hiro, but in the entire idea of doing anything for others at the expense of yourself. This has followed him into the present, where he maintains a disinterested facade to keep others at bay, never relying on him, and he never relying on them. In this way, Hero's broken promise is about more than temporary disappointment. 
It's the very foundation of why Mitsuru has isolated himself for years afterwards, until he's the hurting, lonely, self-loathing person we know now. A lot of consequence came out of Hiro's lapse, and because part of that consequence was Mitsuru withdrawing from others, he's never really addressed it or shared it with anyone in a way that might help him. And why should he? Hiro shattered his idea of other people as being perfect. Someone else is just as likely to let him down with their own imperfection. Luckily for him, someone like Kokoro has taken interest. Her strategy to get through to him is fantastic. She starts out by tearing down any idealized notion of herself, fully admitting that she has hurt others, broken promises, that she's not the nice, gentle girl that you all think she is. She would have no right to be upset at someone else for doing anything similar to her. He asks if she means that he should forgive Hiro, but she deflects. That isn't what she's saying. She's saying that she knows betrayal is on the table. She knows that believing in him carries the risk of being let down, but she's going to do it anyway. As she says, these things happen with us, but she still wants to have relationships with people, whether laughing or crying. She is telling him that there is a risk in being with others, but she doesn't believe in others because she doesn't understand the risk. Rather, the upside of relationships is worth more than the downside of possible betrayal. Now, they can't have this conversation forever. Around them, the Klaxosaur is slowly turning into some kind of Lovecraftian horror, and the squad won't hold indefinitely. But being part of a team means potentially putting yourself out for the benefit of others. It means taking risks to work together and support each other. And so, she puts her money where her mouth is, and puts herself in extreme peril to try to move the two of them out of danger, to help the rest of the team. In other words, a complete denial of his philosophy. Not with her words, but her actions. She initiates the stampede mode, something we've seen Zero Two do twice, and something we know is dangerous. Judging by Fatoshi and Nana's reaction, this is even more dangerous from Kokoro than it was for Zero Two, but she pushes on anyway. It seems to fail, though, or else she was pushed too far, as Janisa changes into something more bestial, but it's actually that Mitsuru has tackled her and forcibly broken the link. He wants to know how she can trust someone so much. Doesn't it scare her? And though she doesn't answer him here, I think she already did. She knows it's a risk. She thinks it's worth it, and she proved to him that it's not just rhetoric. This seems to be enough to get him to give it a try, and they have no trouble reconnecting and joining the fray. They execute the original plan, exposing the core for Strelizia to do her thing. It seems for a moment like the Klaxosaur wraps Strelizia up, and Squad gasps in panic, but hey, just who in the hell do you think they are? The threat ended, the Squad redocks and disembarks. Fatoshi is still all emotion, and comes spoiling for a fight with Mitsuru over what he put Kokoro through. She attempts to intercede between them once more, but Mitsuru holds her back and takes Fatoshi's punch straight on, which seems a surprise Fatoshi. But he's not remorseful. He lectures Mitsuru about hurting girls and threatens to make him pay if he causes Kokoro to cry. And then Mitsuru says a curious little word. Promise. I promise to protect Kokoro from now on. Kokoro notices and understands the importance of this. It's the very thing Fatoshi demanded he promised before the fight, the thing that he originally blew off. But this promise doesn't make Fatoshi happy. He realizes too late what it is he feels towards Kokoro, and now his misery is on display for everyone to see. Elsewhere in the hangar, Hiro is watching this whole affair. Zero Two comes up behind him, affectionately, and embraces him and tells him not to worry because they'll always be together. But, ominously enough, she says they will be so until the day they die. Now, even though we've had a bit of a sideshow with the series lately, 
pulling back from Hero and Zero Two and spending more time with our other characters, we've still gotten bits of pieces of them growing and changing with one another as well. In fact, in three out of the last four episodes, there has been some scene concerning them right at the very end, despite neither of them narrating or even being the main focus of the story. In this episode, we saw that Zero Two was pulling back from Hero, something I said we should expect due to her increasingly monstrous nature. But we also saw her recklessness during the battle. She seemed almost crazed with a desire to kill the Klaxosaur. Now she seems perfectly calm and is content to be close to Hero, whispering promises of their enduring partnership. This seems totally at odds with how she is during the briefing and during the fight, but I don't think this is some de-escalation of the problem. For one, the music playing over this is the same one that shows up when Hero is in a situation that seems headed for disaster. It plays over his initial introduction, when he's observing the broken two-winged bird and reflecting on the fate of a gin bird with no partner. It also plays during the water dripping sequence in episode 5, starting up during Mitsuru's private suffering in the greenhouse, where he's gripping his chest, and then crescendoing with Hiro in the bathroom alone, also gripping his chest as he watches the spider move in on its prey. In other words, this motif does not indicate happy fun times for Hiro. Secondly, her seeming affection here has nothing to do with her refusal to open up to him. She isn't sharing any more of her worries, and is rather just telling him not to worry because they'll stay together. To go back to our sexuality metaphor, the way she is right now is kind of like some post-coital afterglow. Yeah, it's pleasant, and you feel especially lovey-dovey, but it's a passing thing. It's not the meat of how you feel in a relationship. Her brushing aside their other issues right now and invoking a fatalistic notion of the two of them dying together is not what I would call progress for them. There's more to come on this, for sure. Finally, Mitsuru gets to close out the narration in our ongoing side story tradition. Luckily, he doesn't change out of the present, like Zotome did last time. Not much is actually added by this narration, as he's just reiterating what we could already gather based on his use of the word promise there in the hangar. He does tell us that his fever is gone in the morning, so it seems pairing up with Kokoro will become the new normal, and he is likely out of the woods for the foreseeable future. I kind of expect that we might get a new opening credits next time with him and Kokoro now paired up in the Janista spot. In fact, the way she's longingly looking over in the existing ones doesn't make much sense with Fatoshi here, but will make plenty of sense with Mitsuru there instead. Of course, we might get no credits at all next time if I'm right about them doing something big right before the mid-season break, after which we might get new credits entirely. Yeah, we'll see. Let's move on to goals and conflicts, or rather, just conflicts. So yeah, we don't really have goals today. Uh, last time we mentioned that Zero Two is probably taking a step back in her goals due to the new conflict of her changing. For now, it seems her goal of becoming human or less monstrous is on hold thanks to this conflict. Once the conflict is resolved, this goal can resume. Therefore, Zero Two is changing, so, as guessed, this is manifesting mostly as Zero Two pulling away from Hero. But we also got her erratic and risky behavior during the fight, which I'm pretty sure is linked to this conflict. Now, we don't fully understand what is going on with her. It's the kind of thing they can easily keep from us because Zero Two herself is loath to reveal it. But we can extrapolate a little bit. Because of the thing she said at the end of Episode 6, that she needs to kill more and more Klaxosaurs, and because of her desire to be more human, we had speculated that something about killing Klaxosaurs must move her towards this goal. Maybe piercing their cores like we see here actually pushes back the Klaxosaur within her. 
Maybe somehow Strelizia absorbs part of them and Zero Two somehow gets this effect. Maybe that's why she gets so much more content after the fight. We'll learn it all eventually. For now, I think we can draw a connection between her eagerness to get at this Klaxosaurus core and this conflict of her changing in a way that she doesn't want. I do think that this conflict is going to get worse before it gets better. Uh, this might mean her changing in ways she can't hide, or it might mean she gets especially reckless in a future combat situation and there is fallout from that. But I think there will come a point where she can't keep deflecting Hero. Ideally, I'd like to see her become especially monstrous and have Hero accept her anyway, because then I think a lot of her barriers will come down. Remember, him not being frightened by her horns was one of the original things that made her want him as partner. I drew a parallel between her and Mitsuru this time. Just like him, she's afraid of rejection and so isolates herself. And just like him, the key to helping her will be for Hiro to do what Kokoro did this time, to see her flaws and the risks she presents and accept her anyway, to want her anyway. The Ukuno-Mitsuru partnership conflict comes back again after a long hiatus. Um, they finally failed in battle, and Mitsuru himself appeared to be in danger of washing out. The solution, though, was not for them to fix their issues, but to change partners entirely. Irreconcilable differences, I think is what they call this. I think we can call this conflict over, but its effects have not ended. Instead, the fallout now becomes part of the larger conflict of the team is not a team. Aw, oh, and they have been doing so well lately. But, like I said before, unresolved issues between them remained unresolved, so it was only a matter of time before they flared up again. We got a twofer here, Kokoro's unspoken feelings for Mitsuru, and his problems with his partner come up together. Team Kokoro Mitsuru are probably a good unit from now on, but Fatoshi and Ikuno are now team marginalized. Neither has any path to being with who they want, I think, while the other eight are set up to potentially form four partner pilot couples. Hiro and Zero Two, obviously. Zotome and Miku would probably never admit it, but they're pretty well matched. I'm pretty sure about Kokoro's feelings towards Mitsuru. Whether he reciprocates is unclear, but assuming he is into girls at all, the whole thing with her helping him heal this time would be a pretty good start to returning her affection. Goro and Ichigo is one-sided for the moment, but Hiro seems pretty unobtainable for her. And Ichigo is wearing Goro's hairpin now, uh, not Hiro's, so this doesn't seem impossible. But Ikuno Fatoshi? Not only do they both have to watch their crushes love someone else, but they are given largely unsympathetic treatment in the series. The writers have put them together as though grouping the expendable parasites in one location. What will that mean? I don't know, but the unrest from these two, at least, uh, means that this conflict is still ongoing. So in theme, we will start with nature versus artifice. Last time I said that this was increasingly looking like the biggest unifying theme for the series. Uh, there's just a few things to add to the development of this this time. One is the performance of Squad 13 compared with other squads that Hachi and Nana discuss early on. Nana proposes the key may be the lack of interfering with them which has allowed their simultaneous and unchecked puberty and their natural competitive ways to flourish. Hachi doesn't think it's possible because it runs counter to what they've been doing, the artificial ways they've attempted to corral the actions of past groups. But Nana thinks this might be just what Dr. Franks is about. 
We've been over the evidence that he is trying to have Squad 13 be more natural, so we won't rehash it, but it adds to the debate in an interesting way to see that Squad 13 isn't just making do with more natural ways, they're positively thriving. The other thing worth pointing out is Kokoro's discussion about having children. We now know that people stopped having children. Whether this means literally no children or just a huge reduction, we don't know, and it's not 100% clear if it is a contrived infertility or an elective one. Her question suggests that it's something people chose and that they just decided to stop having children. This actually jives with last episode, where our host lady has a partner that she never talked to. She has the partner because it's an old tradition, not because of the usual reasons you'd have one. The important thing, though, is that Kokoro and the way in which she's being raised has not suppressed her own instinct. She asks if having a baby wasn't just the most natural thing to do in the past, and her playing house suggests that she is pretty warm to the idea of having children herself. We're not sure that's possible yet, but it seems the desire to do so is there, and so we have to start wondering if the artificialness of the plantation society is to blame for the reduction in births. Considering how critical the birth and death cycle is to the natural world, the idea that plantation society has somehow subverted this puts it way, way out of the natural realm. Next is individualism versus collectivism and the related individual versus society. So this theme has some crossover with uh, individual versus society, a theme we've talked about it before. Um, it's not the same exactly. Individual versus society is more about the struggle of an individual and their goals um, against a society that stands in the way of them. Individualism versus collectivism is more of a way of organizing a society, whether more priority is given to group or family goals or more priority is given to individual goals. In very broad terms, Eastern countries tend to have a more collectivist society than Western countries, but shades exist between countries and even subcultures within them. So just like nature versus artifice, humanity does not exist at one end or another, but carves out some middle ground. Where exactly the Goldilocks zone is between prioritizing the good of the individual or the good of society is kind of a matter of debate. The area outside the zone, the more extreme ends, usually comes with some host of problems. As evidenced by both this episode and last episode, our plantation society has an interesting twist on this usual tension. We have a scene this time where Mitsuru says that looking at the adults tells them that we don't need others to live. And last time, we saw the host lady decrying how uncomfortable people used to be because they had to rely on others for every little thing. She further refutes the idea that there is something wrong with her partnership. They don't meddle in each other's business, which gives them the freedom to live their lives as they please. Couple this with the happiness chamber and the medical checker and her non-existent socializing, and it almost seems like the plantation society has taken the idea of self-sufficient individualism and run with it so far that it became isolation. The family structure itself is only an old custom, a relic of the past, and this is reflected in what Mitsuru is saying this time, that thinking about having children is unnecessary. And he's right in a sense. Children are extremely dependent on their parents, and they absolutely restrict the freedom of those parents. They do need others to live. They are completely incapable of existing all the way at the end of the individualism side of the slider. Some measure of collectivism, uh, of family goals, are necessary for children to even exist. And if this plantation nation has somehow whipped up immortality for its members, then children are both unnecessary 
and run counter to the hyper-individualism. Interestingly, we associate collectivism with a more homogenous society and individualism with a more diverse one. But the plantation society is extremely homogenous, artificially so, despite having this extreme view on individual freedom. It's so pervasive that it seems like it must be enforced through some kind of programming and propaganda. Remember Ape prizing uniformity? Again, this seems counter to what we usually associate with individualistic societies. Either way, their self-reliant bent is praised, both by the adults and by Mitsuru. But as already mentioned, individualism has this drawback. Each person is limited by their own shortcomings. You cannot rise above your deficiencies without outside help, without someone else who values the same collective goal as you. For Mitsuru, this is part of why his own failings during the fight are so much more crippling to him than the others. To believe that you don't need others requires a belief that you can handle everything yourself. Being presented with evidence that you can't, that's more than just a failure. That's a hole in your own guiding ideology. In the adult society where every man is an island, Mitsuru's shortcomings are a fatal flaw, a reason that no one should ever put hope or faith in him. Kokoro, though, doesn't have his same idealization of pure individualism. Relying on others and having shared goals and shared responsibilities makes sense to her. I mean, they're a team. It's the most basic requirement for a team to work. And really, if you look at the two groups, this society is not unified around this idea either. The adults might have this extreme individualism and freedom going on, but the parasites hardly have the same. Everything about their lives is controlled and prescribed for them. They exist only in partnerships, and most of the parasites use identical franks and coordinated team tactics. Parasites in general are way over on the collectivism side of the scale. We already know that our squad 13ers are more individualistic than the other squads, so this puts them more in the center. Now Mitsuru's statements this time indicate that he'd rather be way over in the adults camp, but Kokoro is arguing more for the middle. Not only is this more amenable to her interest in children, but the support of someone outside himself is just the thing that Mitsuru needs. She puts herself in harm's way, demonstrating the strength of her belief, and she sways Mitsuru over toward a more middle ground. So, just like the way Squad 13 is carving out a center space on the nature versus artifice scale, I think a central part of their identity and future depend on them finding their place somewhere in the middle of individualism and collectivism extremes uh, as well. This is part of the way this theme relates back to individual versus society. There is likely to come a point where Squad 13's existence in the middle will bring them into conflict with their society. I keep drawing the parallel, but I think this will also figure into the fight for Zero Two's heart as she is like Mitsuru in being too far over on the individualism side of things. I proposed already that a solution to her conflict will probably be found when she can bring herself to trust and rely on Hiro a little more, and that is right at home with this thematic idea. In What to Watch For, we have a few things to note and a few things to take off. For taking off, we've got these questions about Mitsuru and Ikuno's partnership. We didn't get any definite answers about their past, but Ikuno suggests that their issues arise from Mitsuru's feelings towards Hiro, and how those have changed him. Since we've both split up their partnership and made some headway on Mitsuru's mental state, 
um, I think we'll take both of these off. We also have the broad question of how boy-girl relationships will change, something we added after the boys versus girls episode. This probably isn't the end of it or anything, but once Kokoro has a chance to make a play for Mitsuru, she seized on it despite the consequences and her own distaste for conflict. This also brought Fatoshi into an understanding about the nature of his feelings, in an unfortunate way for him, and I think in a broad sense, it will soon be impossible for the group to pretend to ignorance about romance, and why they're experiencing it, and why it seems to be absent in the rest of society. Lastly, something we added last time, what the heck are the kids infected with? This time we got the child fever, something that appears to support the idea that there is some infection or condition that kills children before they become adults. Based on its name though, I feel like this is probably not the thing the adults were worried about last episode. We do, however, have this confirmation that some pervasive condition afflicts the children, and Hachi's statement about it showing up soon indicates that they always expect it to show up. This stays up, though, uh, because there's still a lot we don't know and need to watch for. As far as adding things go, I want to watch to see how Ikuno and Fatoshi interact with the rest of the squad from now on. Like I said, they are marginalized in this group and have no clear path to their desires. Ikuno took a shot at Ichigo and pistol-to-pistol relations and failed utterly. Fatoshi lost Kokoro and his subsequent behavior probably didn't do much to win her back. It would be easy, maybe even normal, for these two to withdraw from the group, the pain of their rejection and hopelessness being all too near. So, will they pull back? Will they start fights? Or will they fade into the background, no change in their characters at all? We'll see. On to speculation then. Uh, like I've said, we predicted that Kokoro and Mitsuru would become a thing. Uh, at the time, I didn't think this would necessarily mean they would be partners, and we still don't know how Mitsuru really feels. But they are a thing in some respects now, so we'll cross this off. However, I have this secondary speculation about Kokoro being doomed if she becomes a thing with Mitsuru. I guessed this while thinking they would be a couple outside of partnership. Now that they are partners and Mitsuru has solved his issue of relying on others, and more importantly, letting others rely on him, I'm thinking that this is no longer as likely to happen. But maybe that means that Fatoshi and Ikuno is set up to be a sacrifice instead. These are the two characters that seem to be punished the most by the writers, and neither has any hope of winning the object of their affection. The other eight pair nicely, as I've said, and this makes Ikuno and Fatoshi loose ends. But since they are so marginalized, losing them wouldn't have the same impact on the audience as losing someone like Kokoro or Goro or Zero Two. It may be, though, that this is exactly why the writers will choose to write them off. It's a way of making death real without losing characters that the audience is more invested in. I hope this isn't what they do, honestly, because it seems like an attempt to have their cake and eat it too. Uh, but me hoping against it doesn't mean it won't happen. Uh, let's see, there were some things we added last time. Um, I said that Zero Two will push Hero away, and we can see that happening. I think there's more to come, so I'll leave it up, but we're definitely on the right track here. We also updated our infertility speculation to include some disease situation that affects children. This time, we got the child fever information, so it seems we're on track there, too. More details to come. This stays on the board as well. What should we add, then? The first uh, thing to add is about the past. 
Now, several characters have had flashbacks to their time in Garden when it's their turn to narrate, and often some kind of defining event is the focus. I think we are missing one from someone who has done a lot of narrating already. See, I think Hiro had something happen to him in the past, around the time of Mitsuru's injection. Mitsuru doesn't realize this is probably why he doesn't remember the promise, and no one else seems to know of it, and therefore couldn't point it out. But we have these hints. Hiro in the last flashback is glassy-eyed and sedate, seemingly dazed, when in every other image of him as a child, he is vivacious and smiling, radiating charisma. Goro says earlier on that Hiro changed around this time as well, further cementing in time the idea that some watershed moment came for Hiro. Then we have all the things we understand happened afterward. Hiro is supposed to be their leader, and even other squads have heard of him, but he failed to rise to that. He and Naomi failed, and it's insinuated that it was Hiro's fault, that it was something to do with him. Whoever that natural, charismatic leader Hero was up until that point is gone now. And clues this episode seem to point to some event that happened to him around that time. So I'm guessing something happened, but it was so traumatic for Hero that not only did it send him down this path almost to failure, but it's not something he wants to talk about, even when dwelling on the past. Potentially, it's something he doesn't even remember clearly, which might be part of why he forgot Mitsuru's promise. He blocked a whole section of his memories off. Some shadow lies across that time period for Hiro. Now, I have speculated already that we will learn about his and Naomi's past during a conversation he has with Zero Two. Uh, I think this will be an important moment between them, uh, potentially brought on by delving into Zero Two's origin. I'm now going to say that there's a good chance these things will happen together, that Hiro's trauma around age nine will come out when talking to Zero Two along with his failure with Naomi. The other thing I want to add is more general speculation, and this is about the yellow blood cells. This time we learned of the elixir injection, something that apparently helps against the child fever, but potentially kills you. It's not actually explicitly stated that it works against the child fever, but the way Hachi refers to it in his chart and mentions that he already had the procedure suggests that there is a link there. Ikuno informs us that it induces more yellow blood cell production, and greatly increases one's parasite aptitude. The second part of that seems to be why Mitsuru took it. He wanted to become stronger to pilot with Hiro, and so risked his life. The first part, though, is what I'm more curious about, especially how it relates to everything else we understand. Like I mentioned, yellow blood cells came up before with Hiro's blood work. We learned two things then. One is that Hiro's yellow blood cell count was abnormally high, so much so that Nana was surprised he was alive. The other is that this was in complete contrast to how other pilots reacted to Zero Two. That is, other pilots must have had their yellow blood cell counts diminished by riding with her. With this episode, we learn that higher yellow blood cell count and parasite aptitude positively correlate. So in essence, Zero Two as a partner had the effect of lowering a stamen's parasite aptitude and their health, but with Hero it did the opposite, presumably increasing his aptitude. We know that riding with Zero Two usually becomes fatal after two to three times. We know that riding with her usually decreases one's yellow blood cell count. Now we have this new link to the child fever and the suggestion that the elixir and its yellow increasing ways help counteract it. So then, is it a stretch to guess that Mitsuru has lower natural yellow blood cell counts, 
hence benefiting from the elixir as a kid. But riding with Zero Two once damaged this count, making him more vulnerable to the child fever. And in this episode, it finally caught up to him. Could some kind of rapid onset of child fever be the thing that killed her past partners? Let's go one step further. The thing about Zero Two that is different is her Klaxosaur blood, right? Should we assume that Klaxosaur blood, or maybe something about Klaxosaurs themselves, diminish yellow blood cells? Or conversely, that yellow blood cells are a check against something the Klaxosaurs carry or emit, in the same way that white blood cells are a check against normal pathogens? Like, yellow blood cells are some kind of anti-Klaxosaur immune system? And, since the child fever seems to be countered by yellow cells, and then rages back in their absence, should we extrapolate to say that the child fever comes from Klaxosaurs in some way? Is the fact that the cores of Klaxosaurs are colored yellow just a coincidence? I mean, what if Klaxosaurs showing up in the world, however that happened, brought this child fever with it? Suddenly, almost no one's kids could make it out of childhood, and so society switched to trying to extend everyone's life instead. They also started giving everyone a rationale for abandoning the idea of having children, rather than just letting them watch their children die. Those who still have children, for whatever reason, give them up to the state, who can at least do something to help them survive child fever for a time, and then use that time to make them into the parasites that guard society against the Klaxosaurs. Thus, the infertility we detect is not a medical inability to have children, although it could be that too, but rather a social taboo against it. To counteract the natural desire to have children and families, the society ascribes to the hyper-individualism and self-reliance we've already mentioned, a value system where having children would be a detraction from one's own life. This would make the plantation society's breakdown of the family unit less about some oppressive control and more like a vast coping mechanism for watching all of their children die. Man, that is sad. How would something like that change a society? Well, I'm not really going to speculate all of that. Um, I do think it's being suggested that there is a link between Klaxosaurs and child fever, uh, so I will add that. And I suspect it will also relate to our evolving idea of infertility. So this ends the video. The end of our next episode will be the midpoint of the series, which means it's a likely time for a big shakeup in the story. Due to the way anime seasons are structured, it's pretty common for a multi-kuru show to have some hook at their midpoint. Uh, this is to keep people interested despite all the new shows that will be starting up. This could also happen in the 13th episode, but Darling did start in the second week of the season, so I feel like 12 is more likely. A two-part shakeup that bridges the 12th and 13th episodes together is also a good possibility. I don't think we'll get two more episodes of side stories, is what I guess I'm saying. Uh, Trigger is fond of some reversal of the audience's understanding of the story midway through, so we'll see if they keep to that trend next time. Title music by Russell J. Crowe, other music licensed from the artists at Audio Jungle. Script, performance, and editing by Theta. Theta is played by Redacted. Original video can be found at youtube.com slash C slash Nearly On Red. And a full list of credits is available at nearlyonred.com. Until next time, thanks for everything.